is going to talk about, and the study is going to talk about uh, not just who you are on the outside. Yes, who you are on the outside matters because God shows us that it matters how we relate to one another. And we talked about how healthy souls last week um, um, reflect what's going on on the outside with how to deal with one another. But um, this this is similar to uh, disciplines of the soul in that it's referring to not who we think you are and not who you think I am, but who you actually are. Who you actually are, your character. It's by no mistake that we talk about character in the same sense when we're talking about stories in books. We love this idea of character development. It's not that we just want to see what this person does. Um, We want to see who these people actually are. That's character. Who you actually are. I've, I've heard it put, character is who you are when you're by yourself. Because when you're by yourself, when you're all alone, you're being who you are, whether you're acknowledging that or not. You know, a lot of us, a lot of us in this world, maybe some of us in this room, don't really like to acknowledge who we may really be when we're by ourselves. And by God's grace, though, He can, He can expose our innermost being. He can reveal who we are and so that we can be shaped, molded, changed, brought into uh, a life where His character and His nature is shaping our character, who we actually are. And man, that's the beauty of Christianity. That's the beauty of life with Christ. That's the beauty of the Word of God in our lives changing us, shaping us, molding us into who God wants us to be from the inside out. So we're going to talk about the disciplines that God sets forth in his word and that he empowers us to walk in uh, so that our character can be developed and so that we can live uh, disciplined, godly lives as men. The first discipline that we'll cover this morning is the discipline of integrity. The discipline of integrity. And I thought this was interesting because, um, you know, I've always tried to uh, maybe dichotomize or, or put into two different categories, like my character and then integrity. But really, I love how the author puts it as a subset of character. Because character is this big heading. It's, it's who you are. And then there's this uh, discipline of integrity. And it, it really has to do with with how you act and, and how you walk and what you do. It's, it's a, 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 an integrous life. Um, Acts 5, 3 through 4 um, reveals, um, we see lots of God's dealings with people in the Old Testament in terms of integrity and, and their walk before Him and, and how He uh, drew out of their lives and demanded from His people in the Old Testament uh, this life of integrity and dealing rightly with God, before God, with people, uh, you know, according to sin and according to His law. But what many people are shocked and uh, surprised by is when you turn uh, the pages over to the New Testament, you see this uh, shocking event happen. And it happens in the book of Acts, verse 5, and I'll read verse three, uh, chapter 5, and I'll read verse 3 and 4. This is an account of Ananias and his wife who have um, told Peter that they um, have sold their land and they are coming with the proceeds of the sale of their land and they're putting it before Peter and they're donating it to the church. It's an, it's an amazing, uh, you know, this amazing thing in their mind. And it, and it would be. To, to sell your land. This was something that was happening in the early days of the church. They were selling their property. They were, they were sharing the proceeds with everybody. But what ends up happening is a deceptive moment here. And it's not the act of what Ananias does. Selling his land and giving portion of the money was not the bad thing. God's not saying give all that you have every time, no matter what. It was the lack of integrity that we're going to see here that God punishes and brings um, a, a real decisive uh, idea into our mind on how God views our integrity. Verse uh, 3 and 4 of chapter 5 says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so 
uh, what you end up seeing in the next couple of verses is Ananias is put to death. And then what we see is that Ananias' wife was in on the lie. She was in on the deceit. And in and, and a few verses later, um, she walks in and she says, the same men that just carried out your husband are, are at the door. They're coming to carry you out too. And she falls dead. And we're shocked by this. This is like the New Testament. This is supposed to be the era of grace. Uh, and, and, and what shocks some of us is that, well, it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> like, thank God he's, he's not chosen to kill us every time we've been deceitful. But I do believe, and most theologians will agree with this, is that what God is showing us is that he wants to set the precedence in the church that he will not put up with deceit in the church. He will, he does not want to put up with lying, um, mouths in the church and integrity matters to God. Um, the author points out that, um, in surveys and in different statistics that have been, uh, put together by the different research groups that, that's, you know, Barna and Lifeway and these different people that are surveying, uh, wide ranges of population, including Christians. Sadly, they're finding that the statistics um, of integrity in matters of uh, questions about the workplace, uh, questions about what you do when you're by yourself. Unfortunately, to our to our discredit in the church, look no different than the world. And so, as men, this uh, this author and, and this church here and, and brother Matt, we want to be challenged in our hearts and want to challenge one another and encourage one another that we've got to be different than the world. Our integrity cannot be simply that of the status quo of this world. The author urges us to say, with Job in uh, chapter twenty-seven, Job says, "Till I die, I will not deny my." Integrity. So the idea is that integrity matters to God. It's in deep. It's deeply. Um, it's not just that God wants good actions from His people. It's that God's character and who He is is truthful. He cannot lie. And so, if He's shaping people in this world, then He wants to shape them to look like His character and nature and and deceit, lying. Uh, lack of integrity has nothing to do with God. It's the opposite of God. It's actually what Peter says. It's related to Satan. He says, why has Satan uh, deceived you? Why has Satan? How, why have you allowed Satan to climb into your heart? So God comes along and he says, this is not just sideways of me. This is opposite of me. God wants us to be uh, people of integrity. And so uh, this next section in here of disciplines of integrity, uh, the idea of the shape. What, what does integrity look like? The shape of integrity in our lives. A man of integrity, and, there, and there's, there's four uh, principles under here, four, um, four little sections of, of describing what a man of integrity looks like. The first one is this. A man of integrity is whole. A man of integrity is whole. So the shape of integrity is one of you, as, as a man of God, being shaped by God, is a, a man of wholeness. And it comes from this uh, Latin word, in, integritas, integritas, which, which means entireness. It means, it means completeness. It means put together, uh, as all broken pieces have been put back together to a, to a puzzle. You're, you're put together. Look what Psalm 15 says. It celebrates the completeness of the man of integrity. O oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor. Nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money as interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He does not, he who does not, he who does these things shall never be moved. Uh, integrity, once again, 
matters to God. And it is a, it is a clear picture of the way God wants a man to, to live in his heart and to walk out his days on this earth. So a, a man of integrity is whole. A man of integrity never cheats or defrauds. A man of integrity never steals. Never cheats, defrauds, or steals. So we're just getting a list here of, of things to look at our lives and say, man, do these things identify me? It's, it's a guardrail. It's a, it's a caution. Number three, a man of integrity keeps his word. A man of integrity keeps his word. Proverbs 26 says, Many a man claims to have unfailing love, but a faithful man who can find. Man, I think in our day and age, with politics the way they are, with um, uh, the way the news media may be, the influences around us in the workplace, so many people will just talk out of one side of their mouth so that they can get something accomplished. And it's become like the way of our world. And, and if we're not careful, if we put on the jersey of the world and say, man, that's just, that's, that's the way we gotta be. That's how you operate in this world. That's how you, um, you, you play this game. That's how you, uh, be on this team. That's how we have to get things done. We've made a grave mistake because we've taken, um, getting things done. We've taken things into our own hands. God is a God who promotes his own people and he has a way of doing that. But if we, if we don't understand that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, we'll start to creep over and, and put the, the uniform on that the world wears when they play this game and, and that's what we'll consider it. it. It's just a game. But no, God takes life very seriously. God is, God is uh, deeply involved in how he wants his people to operate. And we have to see that it's not something to be taken into our own hands. So we can be honest. We can, we can, um, we can be faithful. We can tell the truth. And, and sometimes telling the truth simply means I can't do that, brother. I mean, one of the, it, it can be very simple, you know, being an unfaithful man, breaking promises. Sure, I, I mean, especially if you're a guy like, you, you just want to, you want people to be happy with you, you want, you want things to get done. It can be easy to say, man, I would love to do it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. But then time and time again, it falls through. You're not able to do it. You're not, you, you don't come through with that promise. Because you've learned that it works well in a lot of your, in your favor sometimes to be, to get everybody on your team. To, to say, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you, but, but, as, as you are not able to keep up with those promises, things, things begin to fall through the cracks, and then that's where, where your, um, your relationships begin to fall apart. But a faithful man, who can find? And the, the last part of this section is a man of integrity is a man of principle. A man of principle. And this is about having the courage to stand up for your convictions, even when it may cost. It's not just about having convictions it's not just about saying yeah man i believe that that's a value of my life yeah this is what i this is this is the way i view that he brings out the point here that man of principle is a man that is willing when when his convictions are put on the the chopping block when his convictions what he believes at his core are being challenged by a surrounding environment he doesn't sit back and say, well, we'll just, we'll just let it slide. No, he's willing to stand up. It doesn't mean he's got to make a lot of noise, but he, he, he feels that he's got to do something. He feels that he's got to at least take a stand in his own life and not just say, I, I, I believe this way, but he, he's saying that his convictions, a man of principle, his convictions must, must draw him to a response when his convictions are brought into uh, compromise. So the shape of integrity, the benefits of integrity, the benefits of integrity. Um, we, we know that when, uh, it, it, if we've spent more than a few days in church, a few days uh, studying how God wants us to act and, uh, and the, the demise that comes to our lives when we don't walk in integrity, we can clearly see that there are consequences 
um, you know, lies always backfire on us. Um, dealing with people in, in one way and then talking about them in another way always backfires on us, one way or the other. Whether they find out about you talking behind their back or not, uh, it, it's going to affect your soul in one way or another. But what he wants us to see here is that there's benefits. We don't want to just be... Um, uh, fearfully minded. We don't want to just be uh, in our lives um, living, walking in godly character. We don't want to just be uh, driven by fear as in negative consequences when we don't do stuff. We want to see how God blesses those who walk after Him. And so He draws out some integrity benefits. Benefits of integrity. And the first one is that your character is developed. So, so the first benefit is good character when you walk in integrity uh, you, your character is developed in the way that god wants you uh, to be developed you'll actually become a person um, th- that on the inside represents what you're trying to walk on the outside that's what god wants he wants your your internals to be the thing that drives what's happening in the world around you so your character is developed um Clean a conscience. So, uh, benefits, character, conscience. We all know what this is like um, when, when you're in a setting and, you, and you, you cannot think straight. You cannot think clearly because your conscience, you've, you've either you've been dealing with something or you've done something or you've had a conversation and now this person that you've been talking about is standing there right in front of you and you're thinking, oh my Lord, I d- just destroyed this person of the other week with my mouth. It, 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 and there's different things that we can compromise in life that bring us to a place of seared consciousness. But as God develops our integrity, our consciences over time, the way we think, our psyche, what's going on in our minds can be reshaped and reformed. We've seen that through the Conqueror series, that our, that our brains can even be rewired and the, the thought processes of our lives can be put back together. Our consciences become, can become clean and washed. Three, uh, another benefit, intimacy. Our intimacy with with our wives, our family members, but but intimacy in the sense of brotherhood and friendship, closeness to people. As our integrity increases, as we do the right thing, as our consciences are are not seared by by things that we have to hide in the dark and wonder if anybody else knows what's going on on the inside. As those things become become pushed back into the shadows and the past of our life and we begin to separate, move forward in Christ into, into days walking with Christ over and over, more and more, day after day, abiding in Christ, man, the intimacy, the intimate relationships in our lives begin to flourish because there's nothing to hide. There's, there's, no, there's no walls up. There's no wondering whether, or not, oh my God, does this guy know? Does this guy know what... It, what I've been going through, do they know what I did? It, there's so much worry involved in lack of integrity. There's so, much, there's so much fear involved in lack of character. But as we develop in the area of integrity and God shapes our choices and we do the right thing, our intimate relationships begin to flourish. Um, the, the, the fourth thing is this idea of elevation. And this is a... Um, a section that he hits on just really briefly, and I meant to, to turn to it, but, but it's this idea of um, he, he, we're not stuck in the muddle. We're not, we're not stuck in this uh, competing type of uh, world. We're, 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 it, I've kind of hit on it before. We're not, we're not right here. It's like there, there's a scripture that says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower that the righteous run into and they're saved. And so without preaching a whole message right here, the name of the Lord being a strong tower, you have to understand in the, in the days of, of David and the kings, the, the tower was the highest place in the kingdom. 
the high, the highest place. It was the lookout. You, you could see from the, the tower where the enemy was. And from the tower, uh, a strike of an arrow could, could put out a predator. Um, the, the, the gospel message could be proclaimed from the tower. You had sight. You could see clearly. You were above the storm. You're above the junk going on below you. And the name of the Lord is, for us, a strong tower. And so when we, we don't just run to J-E-S-U-S and we say this, okay, the spelling of your name. No, the name of the Lord is walking in, the name of the Lord is the character of the Lord. The name of the Lord is Jesus, yes, but it's representative of who he is. He's wor- we talked about last week, he's the only one worthy of his name. But, and he's worthy of his name because what his name means actually characterizes perfectly who he is. And so when we're drawn up into Jesus, into his character, into the choices he makes, I mean, we've got a perspective over the, the operator, operation of the world that, that we become discerning. We become, we become able to see what's going on and see that, man, that's a lie the way that that, that, um, that operation system is going on. That's, that's not how God wants me to, to operate in this world. And we're brought up to a place where we can, we can look out from the tower of the name of the Lord and we're not caught up in the messes of everyday junk that the, the rest of the world is trying to muddle through. Elevation. And the fifth, um, the fifth benefit is evangelism. Fifth benefit of integrity is evangelism. This is the idea that this is this is why we get cut down so much as a church. Not just living where church, but it's the church in general. You see, the world easily can spot out the inconsistencies of of someone, of someone's life. And so when the church says, man, we want to be characterized by this, we want to, we want to be people who are like this, we want to do things like this, we don't want to do things like this, and then they read the Bible and they say, absolutely, that's what those people should be doing. And then here we are, our statistics are the same as the world. We're, we're deceiving people like the world. We're stealing from the workplace like the world. We're having the same types of um, marital problems as the world. And what ends up happening is when these types of things begin to characterize the church, people say, yeah, right. Yeah, right. You guys are a joke. I mean, what's the point? Why, why would I ever want to convert? And you, and you may say, well, that's pretty superficial. Uh, conversion is supernatural. It's of the Lord. It's The Holy Spirit's going to work on somebody's heart. And, and God is a forgiving God. And, and God is a God of grace. And, and the gospel is a message of grace. And we're all messed up people that God is saving. And that's absolutely true. I want, I want all of us to know that, recognize that the gospel is one of grace where God says, I'm meeting you um, way before you thought you could ever come to me. I went the whole way for you. I'm not, I'm not asking you to come to me and then we'll see. No, I went the whole way for you. That is the message that we share. But what people are looking at is they're saying, all right, once I believe that message, what happens to my life? And God calls us to a life of integrity. God calls us to be men of changed lives. God doesn't step into our lives to leave us the same. God steps into our lives. I've heard it said, uh, it's okay to come and not be okay, but it's not okay to leave not okay. You need to leave better than you came, not out of your own works, but it's because what God does when he steps into someone's life, he begins to change you over time. And while that is a process, it needs to be a process that actually happens. It doesn't need to be a lifelong delayed process. It's one that we need to see flourishing in our lives because God has given us the means for it to flourish through his word. And so when we are brought along in integrity, we are men who, uh, who have influence in this world. And when we preach the gospel and its message is heard and, and the gospel shakes somebody from the inside out and the Holy Spirit does an amazing work in their heart, they've actually got lives to look around and say, man, this, this, is, this is pretty cool. I see some men who I used to know live pretty rough lives. And here they are. Are you kidding me? Derek Wall is serving Jesus? You know what I mean? You know guys like that. I know guys like that who knew me when I was 16, 17, 18 years old and, and, and begin to see this shift take place when God began to come into my life and not just me say I believe this thing, but my life began to change. It's evangelism, the ability to share the gospel and the fruits of the gospel be proven in people's minds. 
And so then the discipline of integrity, he just wraps up this idea is um, the discipline of this is is making integrity not just a thought we think about, but a habit of our life. And so um, w- w- without belaboring this point, we can make it very simple. If we have integrity in the small things, things we, we would call small, we'll see that the big things begin to take care of themselves. But ultimately, no small area is an area to neglect integrity. But if we'll be disciplined, if we will make habits out of, out of small things, small things of integrity, small choices, small decisions. I'm reading a book right now that's incredible by, um, Craig Groeschel. And it's called, I'm almost finished with it, but it's called Seven, um, what, what is it? Uh, Divine Direction is the name of the book. Won't go into all the book, but he talks about making a one small decision, uh, of, of, of integrity, one small choice in your life, one small life change that, that begins to put discipline in other areas of your life. And, and for him, he said it was flossing his teeth, choosing to floss his teeth every day. And he said, it sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's one of those things that begins to build character over time in other areas of your life. If you'll be integrous with something as small as flossing your teeth, some of you, it may be waking up early and opening up scripture. Some of you, it may be something as small as I've heard making your bed very unholy, you know, very not Christian. But if you'll look at it, it is. It's bringing, it's bringing order to chaos. It's very character of God. And when we start with these little things in life, choosing to say no to that website, choosing to say no to that little bitty, um, something you would call very small that no one will see. If you'll begin to make those integrous, putting on your seatbelt, driving the speed limit, you know, little things, as those things begin to become part of your character, there will be big things in your life that will, that will be easier and easier to make integrous choices. So the um, discipline of integrity. This one will be a little more time. Number two, discipline of tongue. And then the last two, discipline of work and discipline of perseverance. We'll kind of go through a little quicker, but we'll, uh, like last week, spend um, probably the whole hour going through the rest of this. So about give me 25 more minutes and we'll... We'll get through this, but discipline of tongue. This is very powerful. So number two, discipline of character is discipline of the tongue. James 3, 3 through 5 says this. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds... They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And what the author wants us to see here is the intrinsic value of the tongue. The intrinsic power of the tongue. So he just wants you to see that. The tongue is very powerful. It's like a rudder. It's like your body is a ship, your life is a ship, and man, wherever you stick out that tongue and you make syllables and words come out of your mouth, you are shaping the direction of your life, whether you realize it or not. And some, to our demise, some of our lives are like aimless ships going round and round, lost in an ocean. So many people's confusion in their life is driven because they do not know how to control the rudder of their life. They blabber. Their their rudder is just going back and forth all the time. No direction. no, No pointed direction with their words. They just talk in a million different directions. No clear pattern of life. Nothing, no truth. You say whatever you want to say. And what you begin to see in people's lives like that, the pattern of their life is just circling around the same trajectory over and over again and never going forward towards a destination. So there's the intrinsic power of the tongue. 
It's powerful because it can, it can shape the direction of your life and it will shape the direction of your life. And the second is the destructive power of the tongue. James 3, 5 through 6 says, So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting it on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The author points out that the tongue has the destructive power of life or death, has the, the capability to, to bring about life or death. And a lot of people misuse this term. A lot of people misuse this scripture in that, you know, you need to use your words and, you know, speak things into existence and, you know, claim it and name it and say, you know, I believe this is going to happen. How words shape, how words guide. And through the fall, Brother James here draws out the idea that hell has touched our lips. Hell has touched our tongues. And if we're not reconditioned, we're going to set ablaze our own lives and the lives of those around us. Words um, can be like verbal cyanide. Words can be like poison. And so there's some different ways that this can happen through, through gossip. Proverbs 18.8 says, the words of gossip are like Choice morsels. That sounds good, right? A morsel of food, something good, and something like a cookie, like a chocolate chip cookie. Oh, man. I had one last night, and it was good. I ate every morsel of it. And so sometimes gossip can be incredibly enticing and taste very good. And it says they go down into a man's inmost parts. Now, it was great when that cookie went down into my inmost parts. But when gossip like a morsel, like a chocolate chip cookie that you want every bit. When it sinks into your soul, it begins to rot. I'm sure that cookie was not helping me at all. But gossip is a rotting food that tastes good to the ears and feels good sometimes when it enters your soul for a minute. Oh man, that was juicy. Goodness gracious, it felt good to know that about that person. Golly, I'm glad that they're going through a terrible time. But then it sinks down. And it begins to affect. It begins to fume. It begins to let gas flow out of it. And, and, and acid burn and fill your insides. It begins to fester inside of you. Your inmost parts. So gossip is like verbal cyanide. Flattery. Flattery, like verbal cyanide. Proverbs 29.5 says, Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a a net for his feet. I love this picture. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've I've struggled in life. I love love people, but but sometimes I love people too much in the sense that I actually don't. I'm not loving. I want them to love me. I want people to like me so much that I'm willing to build somebody up in a bad way. Meaning that that I'm willing to tell this person something that you know what I really don't mean. It was nice for me to say that, but you know what I really I really probably didn't mean that. I probably shouldn't go have gone that far. That's flattery. Flattery telling telling someone, you know, oh man, whatever it is, you you're telling somebody something that you really don't mean really is being selfish. It's, it's not selfless to tell something to somebody that you don't mean. It's selfish. It's got a self-promoting um, motive. What ends up happening? It's like setting a net for your feet. For the feet of that person because they're going to have a big letdown when they find out you really don't mean what you said. But it also sets a feet for your own soul, sets a feet for your own life because the more net you cast out that you don't mean... Man, the more fish you're going to catch that you don't know how to handle. And you're going to have people all around you that you really can't care for the way that you're pretending that you can care for them. 
And that may not make a whole lot of sense, but as you, as you grow in life, and, and especially in leadership, in church or in business, the more you say to the people that you're trying to sell stuff to, and the more times those things fall through, but the, there's this crazy connection of net that you've thrown out there, and you're dragging people along. I see this in relationships with students all the time. Guys flattering girls for no apparent reason other than they just want that attention for a minute. And all of a sudden they got a clingy girl that won't leave them alone. And I'm like, bro, how many nets of flattery did you throw out? Well, you're dragging her along. Girls do the same things to guys. It's like verbal cyanide. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Psalm 12, 3 through 4. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and every boastful tongue that says, We will triumph with our tongues. We have a whole political system that promises and boasts that we will triumph with our tongues. Let us as the church not be a political system. Let us as Christians not be a political system that says, If we simply say the right things, we will get things done the way we want. The word is powerful, but it's got to be words driven by the word of God. Verbal, cyanide, criticism, diminishment. I'm just kind of listing them now, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Criticism. Just good criticism at times can be very helpful. But man, if your criticism, if you're bent towards criticism, if your, if your life is becoming characterized by criticism and all you, your, your natural inclination is to tear down and to, to, um, to always point out all the negative things about that with no help, it's negative criticism. The, critic, critic, being a critic and having a critical eye can be one of the best things. It may be your gift. But, but a godly, gifted person with a critical eye always attempts to bring a solution because they want the betterment of the whole, the whole body. But if you've got a critical spirit, you're just cutting down. The last verbal cyanide, diminishment. James 4.11, diminishment. It says, do not speak against one another, brethren. And, and here's, here's, the, here's the point. Most people, most people are already well aware of their faults. I mean, mo- most people don't need you to step into their life and tell them how terrible they are. Most people don't need you to step into their life and say, bro, you're not bringing much to the table. Um, sometimes we, we talk about tough love, but, but James, James is pointing to this thing that, that if there's, if there's just something in you that is so competitive that you can't see anybody else succeed and your eye is automatically drawn to cut them down and then, and then somehow snidely say something that may be this, uh, back-ended comment or back-ended compliment to, to somehow bring down their soul. James comes against this. The Word of God comes against this. So, diminishment is like verbal cyanide. This is what James, James points to this idea of worthless religion. James 1.26 says, If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. His religion is worthless. And you, you can have the most influence in the church. You can have all kind of position and title. You can be doing a lot of good things. But you can absolutely ruin your witness. And James uses this term religion in, a, in the good religious sense, not in the, the religious sense we normally criticize. He's saying, man, religion would be a great thing because it would mean that your life is actually prese- uh, being presented to the world around you as Christ wants you to. If your tongue is not contained, then what you present is simply a false, uh, a false presentation to everyone around you. Your religion's worthless. You, your, your, your life you're trying to present to everybody is worthless if you can't contain your tongue. Matthew 12 says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we're drawn here in this section to a disciplined tongue. 
We are called to have a disciplined tongue. We have a chance at spreading the gospel with our tongues. Let's not squander this opportunity. Let's stu- let's be good stewards of the rudder that God has given us to steer our ships. And when our rudders as a body collectively have, as men are going in the right direction, we begin to see mo- a momentum. We begin to see a movement. We begin to see great things happen as our character as men is built up, as our integrity as a community of men is built up and we begin to lead. God's going to have us lead with our tongues. He's going to have us lead with our voices. He's going to have us lead not just with our lives, but with what we say. And if what we say has no meaning and our religion is worthless, then we cannot expect a movement forward in our day and age when the church needs to be moving in a direction and not just sitting still. We need to be moving forward. And so we need to ask God to cauterize our lips. And this picture comes from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has a vision of the Lord. The king, he, he says, in the day King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord and his robe filled the temple. But he gets to this place where he realizes, oh shoot, this ain't good for me. This isn't good for me. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And he recognized the holiness, the bigness, the incredible picture, the awe of God. He says the the train of his robe filled the temple, meaning that his glory was abundant and it was a lot bigger than he could have even, even ever imagined. And so he's having this crazy revelation here. Oh, God, you're bigger, you're more holy, you're more righteous than I ever imagined. I'm in the wrong place right now. Forgive me, I'm a man of unclean lips, woe is me. But then something amazing happens, an angel comes and takes coals from the altar and he puts it on Isaiah's lips. And then he sends Isaiah to his people. And it's a picture that, you know what, you and I, while we may live among unclean people, and we may have a heritage in our own life of being unclean with our mouths, God can come into our lives with the Word of God by His Spirit and cauterize our tongue. And say, nope, nope, I'm gonna sear that out of you. I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take that from you. I'm gonna take that desire to be an unclean speaker. I'm gonna take that desire to use that type of language out of you because he's loving, because he's caring, because he's powerful, because he's not a God saying, let me just wait and see what these people do. He's saying, no, I'm an activator. I'm taking coals from the altar and I'm going to their lips. God is powerful enough to do that and we must pray in that direction that God would reshape our tongues. He would cauterize the junk in our mouths and he would, he would sear that out of us. And we should be in constant prayer about our tongues. And we should discipline ourselves regarding our tongues. Here's a few passages. Just write these down. Go back. These are great to study in terms of uh, the tongue. Ephesians 4.15. It talks about perpetually and lovingly speaking the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. Uh, Proverbs 16, 28. Write that one down. And, and it just talks about refraining from gossip. Proverbs 26, 28 talks about refraining from flattery. And then James 4, 11 talks about staying away from cutting down people. And so we've got the discipline of integrity, the discipline of the tongue. And these are disciplines of Character and God shaping who we are. In this third section, um, not last, but we'll get through these last two quickly here. The discipline of work. So we've got disciplines of character, God shaping who we are. And here we have the discipline of work. What does the Bible say about work? The Bible says a lot about work. But in our day and age, we end up thinking that work is simply part of the curse. I mean, it's hard, man. And, 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 it, and, it's, and, it, and it distracts us and it makes us sweat and, it, and it, uh, it drives us to our knees at times and keep us, keeps us up late at night at times. And while all that is very true, 
And while those aspects of work are part of the fall, what we see, though, at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, we see that God is a God of work. And we see that God intended, prior to the fall of man, for man to work in the garden. So God establishes, at the beginning, this concept of working. But what gets introduced at uh, the fall is this concept of toil. And part of our struggle and part of the lack of ease that we experience is, is part of the curse. But we, we have to see that work in and of itself can be work that glorifies God. Because there is an intent by God that work should be part of our God-given experience as humans. And there will, there will become a day, and many theologians talk about this, when, when Christ returns and there's a new heaven and a new earth, we won't be uh, disembodied figures floating around singing hallelujah like angels. We'll be part of God's new created order at work. Ruling and reigning with Christ. We'll be part of a system that is very active. And we will have jobs. And we will be, we will be commissioned people. Because work is good. Work is what God... That, he is a worker. He's a creator. It's part of His character and nature. And He wants us, as we consider work in our own lives, He wants our work to be shaped by how He's established work to be. Work became under a curse in Genesis 3, but in the New Testament we see little hints at work becoming redeemed. And one of the most beautiful pictures, one of my favorite scriptures in uh, the Bible is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, For we, meaning those who have been saved, those who are God's children, we are God's workmanship. So, so it's, we are actually part of Him working. We are part of His desire to do something and work and create. That, that's you and me, especially as we come alive to Jesus Christ. Man, you, you have been recreated. Work took place on God's part to bring you about in your physical life, but in your soul, in your spirit, to revive you. So we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. But look at this, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Work has been part of God's plan for your life, for my life, and we should see our work that way. And so the discipline of work looks like, um, there's, there's a few things that characterize it. Let, let's, let, let me just list them for the sake of time. What characterizes the discipline of work in God's way? Not in man's way, not in, not in clawing our way to the top, but what is work look like in the new um, way, in the new resur- in the resurrected world, in the resurrected life, what does work look like? In, in one, it looks like energy opposed to laziness. Energy opposed to laziness. Now, you can automatically switch your mind over and be like, man, I don't work out. Um, I, I am tired. I, I don't have enough time in the day to have energy. And so while your body may feel depleted, God does call you to a place of energy, if, if nothing else, starting out in your mind, knowing that that's what God has for you. He has, he has a life of energy for you. And it may not manifest itself in your physical body right now, but the Bible does promise that the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead will give power to your physical bodies. It is a promise in the Bible that you can have spiritually driven energy in your life opposed to laziness. And it's a study in and of itself, but God calls it to it, calls us to it. Proverbs 26, 12 through 16, we'll read it really quickly. It says this, Do you see a man wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road, a fierce lion, Roaming the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He is too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. And it just paints this picture 
of a mindset that somebody, some, I've got it figured out, man. I'm just, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to holler at you later kind of mentality. But God calls us to be the one who seeks out counsel. Hey, what should I do? I'm not wise in my own eyes. There's a lion out there, man. Let's, we either need, we need to come up with a plan. I'm not just going to holler at you to go take care of the lion. There's, there's wisdom in somebody who's, who's thinking proactively, who's being energized in their mind by scripture. We think of energy strictly in terms of let me eat the right thing or if I eat the wrong thing, I'm not going to be energized. God calls us to be energized in our mind, making us aware of the right thing to do. So much of our lack of energy is because we don't have the word of God in our minds. We lack wisdom. We lack the right thing to do and it wears us out. It wears us thin. We're, we're drowned by confusion. But imagine if we had wisdom in every circumstance in life. If you had wisdom in every decision you had to, godly wisdom, godly counsel, your energy level would begin to rise, firstly in your mind. So energy opposed to laziness, enthusiasm, Colossians 3.23, you can just write these things down here at the end. Whatever you do, Colossians 3.23 says, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Romans 12.11 says, never... Be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. And it it goes with the next two, really. Enthusiasm and then wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. It says, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with all good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or he is free. The last one is excellence, doing things with excellence. But I just want to comment really quickly on enthusiasm, wholeheartedness, and excellence it's this idea that I, that that you see in the life of Daniel. It says he was he had an excellent spirit. Um, you see here with Paul, he's talking about not doing things half-heartedly, but doing things wholeheartedly. It's this idea that Christ has has done something so amazing that it affects how you should view everything you should do. You know, I preached a sermon last uh, on Wednesday, and I made the the comment uh, of living our lives not in the sense of what the bracelet says. What would Jesus do? But imagine if your bracelet of uh, what would Jesus do? WWJD would say WDJD because it has so much more power. And that that WDJD is what did Jesus do? Man, when we see what Jesus did. We're not left to question, well, man, what would Jesus do in this situation? No, we can look at Scripture and say, what did Jesus do on my behalf? And if we will let that sink down deeply into our hearts, it will empower us. It will energize us. It will change us from the inside out because we see that Jesus was not a quitter. We see that Jesus was not lazy. And ultimately, we see that Jesus paid the price for all of our sin, including laziness. And when we see that, it begins to revive our soul, begins to revive us, and we begin to see that, man, the power that Jesus exuded by the Holy Spirit, He has now imparted us to, or He's imparted to us through the Holy Spirit, this same life. And so while th- those things may not manifest themselves in some jolt like a Red Bull, but over time, as Scripture begins to wash your mind and the way you think, you begin to gain wisdom through godly counsel, through His Word, and through brothers in Christ, that wisdom of Christ, the Spirit of Christ, will begin to make your body alive, make your mind more alive, make you more sharp and more aware. And so here we are, we'll close. The discipline of perseverance and it's and it's and it's really just a challenge it's a challenge to not quit it's a challenge for the long run the, the, these are these are tough things because we live in a tough world with tough decisions to make but god god's word god's character 
God's nature is that of one who does not give up. In the toughest moment of Jesus' life, even through prayer of, God, if, if it is possible, take this cup from me. There's, there's another way. We see his humanity, not sinfulness. He didn't sin, but we see his humanity in saying, God, this is a tough cup to drink, but not my will, your will. We see this amazing fervor, perseverance from before the foundation of the world for Jesus to come and be pleased with his death and pleased with the accomplishment of our lives as believers. And he persevered. He endured the cross. And that character, that nature of Jesus, he imparts to us to be men of perseverance, of endurance. And so it calls us to evaluate the things in our lives, to, to divest, meaning to, to strip off, to strip off the things, the besetting sins in our lives. Evaluate every little thing. What are you letting in your eye gate? What are you letting in your ear gate? Where are you letting your mind travel to? What are you saying out of your mouth? What are you harboring in your heart? Is there bitterness? Is there backbiting? Is there gossip? If there is, thank God you've recognized it. It's a moment of grace. And when you see it, capture it. Take it captive and say, Lord, there it is. Lord, I I just, I divest. I take off the clothing of that junk and I I press through there. And then he he says, part of perseverance is running. Paul points to this thing. It's like a marathon. Run the race. Run. It's not, and it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. Just keep running. Forrest Gump style, man. Just keep running. Focus. Not just on what you can do, but focus on what Jesus did. Perseverance is stripping off the junk. I gotta run, man. I gotta take this junk off and you just start running. Keep, just stay, stay with it. If it's tough, just stay with it. The first three miles is rough. The first five miles is rough, man. It's like, it feels like pulling teeth. And then focus. Where's your target? Is your target a better you? No. Your target is not a better you. Your target is a perfect Jesus. And it's not that you're trying to go and, and attain like life like him on your own. It's that, man, I know if I keep my focus on Jesus, he attained a life for me that I never could attain for myself. And when I see that, oh, man, that's a beautiful goal. And I know he's going to bring me all the way to himself in glory. So I'm just going to keep on going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay focused on what he did. And I'm going to trust him to do in me. I'm going to stay focused on what he's doing in me. And then consider when, when you figure, man, this thing is too tough. I'm going to take a break. I'm going I'm 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 to stop here for a sip. I'm going to stop here and I'm going to get off the track for a moment. Consider his death. Consider what he went through. And it's not to guilt you. It's not to guilt you and to keep going. Oh, shoot, man. Jesus did this. I feel bad. Shoot. <laughs> no. It's to empower you. He didn't look at you and, and, and say, why'd you do this to me? Why in the world would you do? You see me up here? Why in the world did you do this to me? No, he hung there on that tree. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh my God. There are no more powerful words in all the universe than not being guilted and shamed into repentance, but being empowered by the Son of God into repentance to get back on the track. Father, forgive them. Hanging on the cross, when it was our sin that put Him up there. Father, forgive them. There's no more empowering words than that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You that these men have pressed in. Lord, this is not a a sermonette. 
God, this is not an appetizer. Lord, this is a meal. This is a moment. This is an hour. Lord, this is, this is digging. This is soul searching. God, if nothing else, sitting through these moments is sacrifice in our world of fast pace. So I pray, God, that the witness would expand from this place. Lord, that the gospel would go forth from here in words that maybe were not even captured. Lord, God would spark life as they've sunken down into the soul. So Father, I pray that as these men go out of these room, this room here this morning, there would be light, they would be salt, they would bring flavor to the world around them, they would run with discipline of character, you would increase our integrity, Lord God, and you would send us into this world straight in a direction like a ship, uh, like a fleet of ships moving in one direction, bringing great momentum, bringing great movement, a wide wake of multiple ships going in one direction, God, where we bring along with us a movement, a generation that needs to be single-minded towards Christ and making an impact in this world for eternity. We love you. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for letting me go five minutes over. Uh, guys, uh, Matt has asked if, if we can stick around. We're going to set up 18 tables and chairs really quickly. It'll, it'll happen fast.